Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the Sermon Extra. Uh, this is going to be our last one coming from the book of Titus, which uh, it was fun to finish up this Sunday, first book I've ever preached through. And so, uh, you know, feels like a milestone, something I'll keep in my memory. And uh, we were talking about uh, threats to the church in our common message and mission, and the threats that come from just being distracted by focusing on our own preferences and our own wants, the things that lead to debates and then eventually engender divisions. Uh, we talked about how too often we think of the church like a restaurant and uh, it's like, well, is this, did I like the meal that was served? Do I like the atmosphere and ambiance? And uh, I was remiss in mentioning what I posted on Facebook from the Emperor's New Groove, how it connected in. So if you were astute, you might have caught it. That is, if you follow me on Facebook and also were at church. But uh, I had shared a clip of um, where Yzma and Kuzco are continually walking in and out of the kitchen as Kronk's cooking and uh, just saying their preferences for the kind of potatoes they want. Um, cheddar spuds coming up. Spuds, yes. Cheese, no. No, I want the cheese. Cheese, me no likey. Cheese out. Cheese in. And uh, I was just thinking that would be a humorous way to illustrate just the idea of if a, if a pastor or a church leadership team uh, is given to trying to please every single person's unique individual preferences, it's like a cronk there in the kitchen trying to prepare uh, this perfect baked potato for people that want something totally different. And it's just a lose-lose situation. So anyways, cheese me no likey. It's a, it's a, it's a classic. Classic. Anyways, I thought I should at least mention that. Uh, what I want to talk about in this sermon extra is just um, more to do with church unity and maybe a little bit just some thoughts on it and uh, more on the positive side of how to pursue it as well. We were talking about kind of the threats to church unity and uh, yeah, just I'm going to riff on that for a bit. So let's get into it. Uh, as I was doing research on just reasons churches split and tear apart, uh, Studies kind of show that the main reasons are splits over doctrine and then splits over sort of power in the church and leadership and um, how to attain and kind of how those work. And I was really thinking we're really blessed in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that um, we are in many ways um, saved from a lot of the things that split most churches because we so clearly have our doctrine and practice outlined. So in this sense, the fact that um, we hold to the Westminster standards as our confession of faith, um, a set of doctrinal standards which is robust and thorough, it means that a lot of even the secondary issues are spelled out for us. And so we don't have to start trying to reinvent the wheel or discuss, well, what does our church believe about divorce and remarriage? Well, it's in the standards. What does our church believe about um, the Bible or this issue or that issue? Um, it's already outlined. And so that, because we know that that's what we're working from, it's what all church officers have to adhere to, um, we're really protected from needing to try to have position statements on every conceivable issue. So that really helps with that idea of splits over doctrine. And uh, it's not going to change. We Our church just can't decide, hey, we're all of a sudden going to start teaching something new and amend it. No, because we're Presbyterian, we're connected to a network of churches, which all help us hold the line together. But not just the confessional centers. There's also great help in our book of church order. Uh, that's something which most members will be less familiar with. But our book of church order, it spells out best practices for things like worship and discipline and church government. 
And this is really helpful because a lot of times churches get divided and split over issues of discipline, church discipline being carried out inappropriately or ill-advisedly, or issues of just church leadership lording it over congregants, not dealing with things right. And our book of church order outlines a very clear process of discipline, clear steps. And it's something that's really helpful for church leaders to be able to appeal to if people question why they do things the way they do, to say, no, this is the way we do it in the OPC. This is how our discipline process is outlined. And if it's not, at, maybe it's not perfect and the best way it could be, but we weren't being at least capricious or arbitrary in how we were deciding to handle the situation. And of course, there's always room and margin for error, but having the book of church order is really helpful and just helping us all be on the same page. And also just having outlined processes for how do we vote in elders? How do church leaders um, get and maintain power? And really keeps us from a lot of the issues I've seen in more congregational churches where um, the, the church itself is independent and decides all its own policies. It decides all its own bylaws. And man, if you uh, have ever been in a church that was trying to write its own bylaws, you know, invent that wheel from scratch, it's a trying process. So I just thought I'd point that out to us that we really have a great benefit being in the OPC. And these two blessings of the Westminster Standards and Book of Church Order really do help preserve unity. Okay, and as we're talking about unity, um, the classic quote that comes up, I believe it's attributed to Augustine, though I know people have said that um, it, that might actually not be where it originated. But anyways, it might have been Augustine that said basically something along the lines of uh, that in the, in the, the uh, Christian church, that in essentials, we want unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. So, you know, let's be unified on the core of the faith um, on the things that are not the core, let's allow people freedom to follow their conscience as they understand scripture. But in all of it, let's be charitable and loving to each other. And anyways, I want to actually point out where we actually draw this line in the OPC, and it might not quite be where you think. Um, our Westminster standards do not describe the essentials of the faith. Um, they are things that are important and good, but the essentials that we require unity in are actually what are outlined in your church membership vows. And we would have discussed this in the new members class that we believe that there are a core set of essentials that are required for one to be a Christian. And that's where we draw the line of essential teaching. It's what's required to be a Christian. Therefore, in the OPC, you don't have to agree with the Westminster Standards to be a member because they don't describe what the ultimate essentials of faith are. Um, that would be closer to, say, the Apostles' Creed. And so just, I was thinking of these membership vows. I'm, I'm going to read them here. The first is, do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the per perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? So namely, that the Bible tells us how to be saved. We have to believe that the that we learn of salvation through God's word. Simple. Uh, do you admit that you're a sinner and hating your sinfulness? Do you humble yourself before God and trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Christ alone? This is just simple. Do you trust in Christ for salvation, implying that you acknowledge that you're a sinner? Third, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? 
And do you promise in reliance on the grace of God to serve him with all that's in you, to forsake the world, putting to death your old nature, and to lead a godly life? Uh, this is, again, is that confession of Christ's lordship, and then an endeavoring agreement to live a godly life. And we could summarize these things as really just acknowledging the gospel and agreeing to godliness, or as what we were saying um, Sunday night, the message and the mission, the good news and a life of good works. Those are what we agree to. Those are the essentials of Christianity. And I thought it was interesting. There's a lot of churches that have, you know, a short statement of faith. We actually have in the OPC an abbreviated small statement of faith. Um, but I was thinking, that, and, you know, we do have unity on those things and understand people that have deviated from the simple gospel faith are outside the pale. But because we don't just have to agree to the God, to um, good, <laughs> sorry, we don't just agree to the gospel, but also to live a life of good works. I really think churches ought to adopt something of an ethical statement, a statement of ethics, seeing as we know that there are a lot of churches that have had to break unity or split off from the mainline denominations because um, not that they have in word transgressed certain areas of doctrine, but they've transgressed certain core ethical practices of Christianity, such as that marriage is between a man and a woman, um, that and that homosexuals ought not to be ordained or um, to allow transgender priests, what have you. Uh, there is a basic ethic that is required of Christians. We see it summarized in the Ten Commandments, the ethical teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. But it's not just beliefs that make one a Christian. It's, it's a way of life that is concomitant with that those beliefs. Therefore, we have this vow that you agree to do all that's in you to forsake the world, put to death your own nature, and lead a godly life. Um, there was a church I was looking at recently who, and I wouldn't recommend this, but I thought it was interesting that their entire statement of faith of their church was Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord and all that that implies. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting, you know, probably a bit too much wiggle room, but that's almost what we're saying in these vows, that we acknowledge Christ as Savior, which means we need saving because we know we're sinners and we look to him for salvation. But also we acknowledge him as Lord. That is, we bow our knee to him and confess our allegiance to him as the king and promise to walk in his ways. And I think too often we forget that Lord piece, that we need to confess Christ not only as our Savior, but often our Lord. And then anyways, we have those Westminster standards, which do outline things that we think are true, but they're not part of this core essential required for salvation. But why this is helpful to have such, such a robust set of standards is that it lets us know what we're getting into. If you come to Grace Fellowship, you see the Westminster Standards, you know what positions we take on things. You know what way we're going to teach. And that's something that all the elders of the church would have to be aligned on. So you know that there's going to be harmony in the leadership of the church in a fairly broad doctrinal agreement. And it means that, you know, our church is not going to be flip-flopping. Um, I've actually heard of churches that, you know, they started off Presbyterian, then the leadership changed their mind and they became Baptist, and then they became Presbyterian again later, um, things like that, um, that it just, it leaves the church open to every wind and wave of doctrine in a sense, whereas um, we, we have a solid base that you know what you're getting. And 
even within the church, there's room for people to disagree. You're allowed to gr- to disagree with many of the aspects of the Westminster Standards, and we can have brotherly and sisterly discussions on such things. And even though we think that these standards are true and good, and they do summarize the teachings of the Bible, I do think it's really important um, to avoid a temptation that we can particularly be prone to, and that is that of theological superiority and pride. Uh, to think that, oh man, we figured all this out in our denomination, we really have the Bible nailed, and it's really easy to look down on other churches. And really, this can be a temptation in different denominations. I grew up in more charismatic Pentecostal circles, and we also struggled with looking down on other churches that we considered dead churches or ones that didn't have spiritual life. And so we need to just be careful to guard our own hearts against theological superiority and pride. Not forgetting that a good theology is not the end-all be-all of a church. I often tell people when they're looking for a church that a church with good theology is only half of what you want. Um, If you have a church that's good at theology but bad at love, that's bad at a heart of fervent true worship, uh, that's not actually a good church. Um, Whereas I would probably rather go to a church that was filled with uh, love and fervency and worship, or maybe I quibbled about a few items of doctrine on these secondary matters. Um, But we so bifurcate to think that if we just get the doctrine right, then that's a solid church. That's a good church. No, we we need to have the truth, but we also need to have love and spirit. And what can actually be really helpful in just cultivating a better sense of church unity is actually to be exposed to to Christians in different denominations, to uh, have visited other types of churches, to see, and especially getting to know other Christians. And I've talked to so many people that have this experience. What happens as you rub shoulders in closer contact with Christians of other um, denominational affiliations or church backgrounds, you quickly realize that the Spirit of God is a lot bigger than where we think. And you meet someone who you might think is off on something, but realize that they put you to shame in their prayer life or in their passion for God, or their practice of practical love for others, or their teaching of their children, whatever it might be. God's spirit does not stop at the walls of uh, Presbyterian churches. And getting exposed in this way to other Christians um, can be really, really healthy to help almost dispel that sort of distrust and suspicion. Because you see, something we often fall prey to as well is sort of slippery slope thinking that, oh, as soon as you compromise that issue, then you're just on the slide to liberalism. As soon as you have decided on that, well, clearly you're not a solid Christian anymore. Um, I was listening to a pastor on Titus this week, and he was talking about how their church must hold fast to the essentials of the three C's, cessationism, creationism, and Calvinism. And that these are the ones that as soon as you let go of any of them, boom, your church is gone. And really, these are just kind of odd, arbitrary lines to draw. Uh, Cessationism, creationism, Calvinism, as much as we might think, we might personally hold to those, think they're important, And yes, probably Calvinism does rise above those other two in my mind is just understanding God's sovereignty and salvation. But these are not the essentials of the faith. They can be important and we can have our opinions on them, but they don't rise to the level of um, casting brothers and sisters out of the kingdom. Not even close. Um, I remember a different pastor saying one time uh, he was 
going through first Corinthians and looking at spiritual gifts and just the issues around speaking in tongues. And he said, you know, I die on the hill of salvation by faith, but I wouldn't suffer a paper cut for speaking in tongues. Uh, just saying, you know, some things are more clear in scripture than others, and we need to know where to make our stand and where not to. Uh, we need to have a proper grid of importance and certainty. And this can be a helpful way for us to think of it. Um, I often think of this as a chart. I have coined the importance and certainty chart. And if you imagine um, the x-axis being importance and the y-axis being certainty, that can help us sort of graph how we should think of issues. So you take something like salvation, very important. Um, and then certainty that Jesus is the son of God and died and rose again. We want to be very certain about that. It's very important. And therefore, that sort of becomes an essential. Um, whereas we, someone might be a bit less certain about um, atonement theories. Still important, and we can be fairly certain, but it doesn't quite rise to that next level. And then you might go um, less important, less sermons, something like supralapsarianism versus infralapsarianism, um, which is just the order of God's decrees in salvation. Not as important, not as definitely something we can't be as certain about. Um, you might get to something like baptism, pedo versus credo. Um, where, how important is that? How certain are we about that? And that can help us just be aware that, you know, there's errors here, especially. Um, this is really common. One, people inflate the importance of issues where they turn something that's not important, say like, well, no, that's not important, but something lesser important like baptism and make it the most important doctrine. Or say, I'm so 100% certain about um, my view of head coverings that anyone who disagrees is just clearly disregarding scripture. And it's really easy to be certain, actually, the less knowledge we have. Almost every issue or topic, the more you study it, often actually the less certain you become. You can become more confident the more you study, but you might become less certain, if that makes sense. You can be more confident to know what you do know, but also you become more confident in knowing what you don't know. Um, usually it's quick catchphrases and memes that people feel like, oh, this is an undefeatable argument that leads to the, um, kind of an inflated sense of certainty. And so let's just be careful uh, that not everything the Bible teaches is emphasized to the same extent. And therefore, we need to be people who not just teach what the Bible teaches, but really importantly, we need to be people, people who emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. And I would just encourage you as you read scripture to just really look for the repeated ideas of emphasis. And so you'll notice as you read through the New Testament, what's repeated and emphasized again and again? Love. Love for the brethren, love for others, spiritual fervency, these sorts of things. What's repeated again and again in the Old Testament? I've been noticing it recently, just the call to, to do justice, loving and caring for, for strangers, the poor, for widows and orphans. Um, things that repeat themselves, we need to be careful to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. And as we think about unity, we can also think of it in the broader sense of not just our church, but how can we be connected to other churches and other believers? Um, Tim Keller came to Grand Rapids last fall and 
had an awesome sermon and just encouraged us to greater unity. And he pointed out something that I had never really thought of before, is how when we think of 1 Corinthians 12 and that image of the body of Christ, each part doing what it will, there is a sense in which we think of that and this is the way I almost only thought of it, as our local churches, that, you know, in our church at Grace Fellowship, everyone needs to play their part. But he said, we can also think of that as the broad church, that the whole church is the body of Christ. And Grace Fellowship is not equipped to do absolutely everything needed in order to reach the greater Grand Rapids area, to reach West Michigan for Christ. Maybe we're more like one part of the body and a church down the road or in Grand Rapids is another part. And if we want to really reach West Michigan for Jesus, we need the whole body of Christ in this area to do it. And we can we can be unified in the gospel message and the Good Works Michigan mission, Good Works mission in Michigan. Uh, just like we were saying, we want that in our church to be focused on moving forward by holding fast the gospel message and practicing the Good Works Michigan mission. We need to do that and think of that way with churches in this whole area. Because there's so many things we agree on in the simple gospel, and there are so many practices we could agree on in doing good. Remember, uh, in Titus 3, it says that good works are helping cases of urgent need. There are so many needs in our communities, so many ways that our neighbors um, can be loved and served and helped and blessed and benefited. And we can partner with other churches in this work. Um, we can thank the Lord for parachurch organizations that um, come together and to draw believers from different backgrounds in order to do common work that we agree is good and shows God's goodness and love to the world. Uh, I was listening to the leader of Compassion, um, that that um, the organization that helps children in many parts of the world through sponsorship. Uh, the president of Compassion Canada, she was talking about on how in her church, they were really convinced of their need to be more active and loving and serving and doing good works. And they were really convicted by one author that they were reading. And he just asked the question, if the if your church closed its doors, would the community even notice? And just that that call to be involved and not that it has to be every ministry done through the local church, but together Many local churches have resources and uh, together can bring about volunteer resources and financial resources to do common works of good. So anyways, let's be a people who are just committed to unity. Let's um, hold fast the essentials and spend our time focusing on how we can advance the mission of God to um, see all creation come under the lordship of Christ and uh, to be ambassadors for the Lord and those who like that parable of the Good Samaritan go and do likewise, being those who show mercy, even to those who ought to be our enemies. So let's pursue unity. Let's avoid division and avoid um, an overinflated sense of our own importance and our own certainty on things. Anyways, I hope you all have a blessed week, and I'm not sure if I'll continue these sermon extras in the next series we're doing, which I believe is going to be on the life of Solomon. Uh, and I don't know if I'll have lots of extra to talk about that, but we'll see. Um, I hope you've enjoyed these at least on the book of Titus. And uh, if you'd like me to continue doing them, maybe uh, let me know what you think. Anyways, have a blessed day. Walk with the Lord.